Two Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, August 23rd, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 31. Moses instructs Israel not to worship in the manner of the pagans in Canaan when they finally enter the promised land. Instead, Moses tells the Israelites to take their burnt offerings and sacrifices to the place where the Lord will choose to put his name. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippeck, as we start today, help us set the context. What should we know as we prepare to look at Deuteronomy 12? Sure. We're back at the banks of Jordan, about to cross into the Promised Land. It has been sworn for a long time that this would be the actual fulfillment of God's presence with his people permanently once again. Abraham was given this promise back in Genesis 12 about inheriting this land where God will dwell with them, a land flowing of milk and honey, as we have developed throughout Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus as well, up until this point. And it was ultimately a promise that if you're watching carefully, stretched all the way back to Adam in the garden. Genesis 3, when he was kicked out of the land, God had promised that he would send a child a seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent and restore the very presence of God, that promised land. So from nearly the beginning, we have been waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, and we are on the cusps of that fulfillment, Moses and the Israelites on the bank of the Jordan. Now, having wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and finding themselves back at the Jordan about to inherit the land, After 40 long years of wandering, Moses begins in articulation back in chapter 10. We're sort of in the middle of all of that. He began talking about the first commandment, if you will, what it is to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Moses said back in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, that the Lord said to me, Arise and go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go into the land and possess it, which I have sworn to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does God, your Lord, require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today for your good. So that was back in chapter 10. And now in chapter 12, Moses is going to concretely teach them what it looks like to Fear, love, and trust in God in terms of their faith and life. And this is the beginning of that conversation. And this conversation of concreteness begins with God's presence with them in the Levitical priesthood and the tabernacle's daily worship. 
Mm. Yeah, we, we made mention in the previous conversation that there is a, a bit of transition in, in chapters 11 and really in, in chapter 12, now where Moses, really, as you said, concretely, this the, the Ten Commandments are going to be applied very concretely to Israel's life in the Promised Land. Verse 32 of the previous chapter said, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Verse one of our chapter starts, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do. As you, you see the parallelism there, or that it, it's actually an inverse, like a, a chiasm of sorts. But you, you see how that, that transition is set up. Here's the very concrete ways you're going to start to put this into practice. As you said, starting with worship. So we're going to be thinking especially about the third commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's jump into the text. Moses continues. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash them in piece, dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain, or of your wine, or of your oil, or the firstborn of your herd, or of your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your freewill offerings, or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake." Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat, because you crave meat, you may eat meat wherever you de- whenever you desire. 
If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That takes us through verse 31 of chapter 12. That is our text for today, Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 31. A lot here, Pastor Philippeck. We get started. Again, there's the transition from chapter 11 to chapter 12, similar language in the last verse of 11 and the first verse of 12. As the Lord begins to talk about worship in the promised land, he first starts with the current worship that's there and the need to destroy it. Why the why that reaction from the Lord? Why the necessity of destroying the worship that's there? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? The end of, of the section that you read, the last thing that you guys just heard was burning children alive. <laughs> like if that's not a reason to abolish it, I don't know what it is. But there's more to it than only that. The Canaanite worship is detestable. It goes from fertilization of crops through prostitution to child sacrifice. These are the things by which the people of the land, the Canaanites, the Jebites, the Hivites, parasites, right? All of those, they worship their gods in this way as to appease them, as to make sure everything is okay with their crops. You name it, this is the type of worship. And On the mountain of God, Mount Zion, in Exodus 23, God warned them that they're about to enter a land and take heed lest they sin against him by serving other gods because the people there aren't going to give it up. The people there are going to actually become a snare to them, a thorn in the side. Now, this is going to be echoed again, like I like we had just mentioned here, and like I just jested about at the end of Deuteronomy 12 here. You heard it again, that snare, that child sacrifice came up. So that Exodus language and the Deuteronomy pair very nicely together from the time they're at Sinai now to the time that they're, they've arrived. They've been warned us at the start of this. They're being warned as they enter this. And... Throughout all of this, you know, 
It is going to be by Israel's hands, ultimately, that God executes his judgment upon the faithless inhabitants of the land, beginning with Jericho. The wages of sin, idolatry especially, is death. And here's the thing that's most interesting about all of this. It's not like the Canaanites in the land didn't know about the one true God. The first major stop of Jericho as you enter the land here, as, as you know, you see, if you keep reading the narrative, you're going to run into Rahab. And when we run into Rahab, the two Israelite spies talking to her, uh, she's going to say, I know that the Lord has given the land to you and that the fear has fallen upon the people and the inhabitants of the land. They melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to its destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in uh, any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So that's what Rahab's going to say in Joshua chapter 2, right? So the people of the land, it's not like they don't know who this God is. The problem isn't that the inhabitants of this land don't know the one true God. They know. But even though the current inhabitants know, they will never worship the one true God in his might and his deeds of all that he has done. When Israel comes into the land and starts living in that, in fact, they will refuse to believe in the one true God. So these false gods are going to be part of Israel if they don't get rid of the altars and execute the judgment that God has for sin upon the inhabitants of that land, the wages of sin being death. Mm. So it's a pretty, pretty stark judgment. And you, you laid out very well. I appreciate you bringing out the last verse of our text for today, that this is the reason. I mean, it's not like these people were doing nice things in worshiping their gods. They were doing wicked, abominable things in worshiping their God. And so the Lord gives his people Israel in the Old Testament this very specific command as to how to handle that. How does a text like this apply to New Testament Christians? When we encounter false doctrine, what's our response to be? Paul is very stern in Galatians about false doctrine, as well as many others, but he goes as far as to say in Galatians that the one who is... um, preaching false doctrine, uh, reveling in false doctrine, uh, is anathema, is, is cut off from God and his presence. So, you know, accursed is another word we use for this. So we, even today, are not to tolerate uh, idolatry. We're not to tolerate false teachings in our midst. This is something that's very, very stern and prevalent, brought out throughout all of the all of the different epistles in the New Testament, and something that Paul has to deal with on and on and on. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? This is this is a constant snare for us all. It's what drives Luther even to talk in his first commandment that a God is just more than you know a, a false person, but really it's it's anything your heart is set on who, what do you love? What do you spend your time on? That's your God. What do you look to for comfort and good? And that is what needs to be put to death. We should fear, love, and trust in God. So it's really concretely and nicely bringing the first commandment to bear in worship from chapter 10. 
Mm, right. But but when when it comes to the to Christians today, when it comes to dealing with idolatry, I, one of the one of the commentators I, I read suggested the way we should think about it is we don't deal with it with a physical sword as the Israelites were commanded to do. That command no longer applies, but we do deal with it with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and and treat that idolatry very seriously. Just not in not in the very violent physical way that. Israel was given to do so in chapter 12 here. Correct. I didn't realize that that's the aspect you wanted uh, specifically to talk well, about. Okay. But the difference I appreciate there, you brought it out. Yeah. So. The, the difference there is that God actually commands these people to deal with it in that way. He says, when you go into the land, do this. We have no command from God to deal with false doctrine that way. We have a, a command to excommunicate, to cut them off. Um, from the word of the Lord so that repentance actually, or from, from the grace of God, the application of the gospel, I forgive you all your sins, to stick their sin to them, to bind that sin to them. It is, it is similar, but it is different in that there is no physical punishment. We don't have that command like the Old Testament did. Yeah, yeah, no, and and what you brought out was very helpful, and I think I find it helpful because as as our text continues, so the Lord tells His people in the first four verses to completely get rid of the idolatry, to get rid of that way of worship, because it's it's not like you know don't just kick out the idolaters and then make use of their shrines or their methods. No, get rid of that worship entirely because the Lord has a place in mind. He's got a, a particular way in mind. He's going to, as as it says in verse 5, he's going to put his name in a particular place. That's where he's going to live. And for the people of Israel, that's the place you go. It's a very specific thing. Take us into to Moses's instructions to the people as they go to the place that the Lord's going to put his name. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting context here with the use of the words, you know, kind of blotting out the name is, is what it makes me think of when, when you uh, bring their name, the, the name of the people in the inhabitation here to nothing. Blotting out someone's name is to forget them from the history of the land to make them as nothing. I'll say it like that. That's probably more accurate. So make these inhabitants as nothing in the land because the land and everything doesn't belong to them. Their name isn't placed on it. And quite honestly, neither is Israel's. They get the inheritance, but whose land is it? Whose land do they inherit? It's God's land. He's going to put his name there. He's going to dwell there. And the names matter. The names mean something. I mean, we were all given a name. And if you dwell in the your name, I bet it was given to you for, for specific reasons and purpose. Names matter. Names mean something. Well, God's name, when he puts his name there, it runs like a refrain through the text. In five, what does it mean to have a name? To make his habitation. In 12, rejoice before the Lord. It's the tabernacle. God is actually going to be physically present with his people in a way that he has had no permanent presence with them since he kicked Adam out of his presence and his wife in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3. Only now has there been appearances or a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to guide them, or, you know, the tent, put it up, take it down. But now this tent is going to be a little bit more permanent. It's not as permanent as the temple, and it's certainly not as permanent as the true temple, the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, where God actually makes 
his dwelling to cleanse sin forever. Uh, that's going to be brought up later on as we talk about this. But this tabernacle and tent is actually the place where God is going to choose to put his name in this land and to dwell with his people. You know, it's interesting because there are changes, but our God is remarkably consistent with the way that he works. In the Old Testament, you know, you have this historical narrative about a son who hauls wood on his back up a hill, right, for sacrifice. Hmm, where have I heard that the father's going to put a son to death on some, oh yeah, what never happened fully with Isaac happens fully with Jesus. You have this whole shadows to reality. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. You have this little glimmer of how God worked for a few people in the Old Testament, but now how he works for all people. Well, wouldn't you know it? God's presence in the tabernacle has changed a little bit. He's still, he's, you know, there in the flesh of Jesus, but now ascended to heaven. He's still like in the tabernacle veiled, but not in the same way. We don't have priests to access a curtain once a year. No, God's presence is concretely tied to where he has placed his name. And where he has placed his name is an absolution in baptism in Holy Communion, this is what happens in our midst today. God is everywhere, but God is not everywhere simply to speak to me, to forgive my sins, to wash me with the water. I can't get that at a golf course. I can't get that out at the lake or hunting. I get that where God has promised to be when two or three are gathered in his midst. So today, even God's presence is there where his name is and where his his name in church every week. Baptism, in his word, in absolution, in holy communion. God's presence, his name abides and he has placed that name on us so that when we depart in peace, Christ lives as us. And we actually serve as masks of God in our day-to-day life, God at work in us to will and to do. It's a marvelous run through things. I know I'm kind of being just summative in all of this sort of stuff, just giving a summary, but but it carries through to all of it. Well, it really does. And I, I think one of the things, and I can't, I'm not sure if you brought this one out, but I think it, it very much ties to the way Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John, where he talks about, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And his disciples realize later, oh, he's talking about the body that he has. That's the temple. This is the place where God's name dwells. It's in Jesus Christ. That that connects, of course, to the, the prologue in John's gospel. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. So Jesus is the place where God's name dwells, which means that when Christians want to worship God, on the one hand, there's not a particular place like there was, say, in Jerusalem for Old Testament Israel. I mean, Deuteronomy 12 here, a few a few centuries later, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, if you wanted to do the sacrifices that are described here, that's where you had to go. And if you went somewhere else, that was wrong. It didn't matter if you did the sacrifice, if you went somewhere else, you weren't doing it according to the Lord's commandment. And we'll talk about the sacrifices more on the second half of the program. I want to focus on this location aspect here. Today, you know, you are a pastor in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. I'm a pastor in Smithville, Texas. I don't know how far that distance is, but it's a good ways away. People in North Dakota can go faithfully to 
the congregations that you serve in Lidgerwood. People in Texas can come to the, the congregation I serve here in Smithville. And in either place, they can worship God faithfully. And yet, there is something that happens in that place that may not happen in every place that does distinguish. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm trying to formulate a question here, Pastor Philippeck, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do that, to be honest with you. I, I guess what I, what I want to talk a little bit more about on this side of the program is, is the matter of location. How does it, how does it not apply to Christians anymore, but how does it still apply? Does, does that make any sense? Absolutely. So it doesn't Good. apply in that um, we have a particular land in which God has promised to dwell, like he did in the Old Testament. We have something greater than the temple. We have the reality of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who offered himself as the sacrifice, our great high priest who in his flesh passed through the veil to the Father and now intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. And risen from the dead, his body, his resurrected and glorified body, the place that is flesh and bones where God still dwells, can do wonderful, miraculous things. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and risen from the dead, you'll notice that he can just, as his disciples are talking in a locked room at the resurrection, he can just appear. Doesn't say, you know, the walls open, doesn't say he just appeared among them. His body is present in ways and places that are quite mysterious to us, but quite physical and tangible as well. Touch me and see, Jesus says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And risen from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand to intercede for us, Jesus has breathed upon his disciples the spirit. And that spirit, upon breathing, he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they are withheld. But before he does that, and after he breathes, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so now I send you. And he sends the disciples, the, the 12 at the time. Later on, you have others that are coming in, you know, seven more. You have Stephen and all of the other ones there, Philip, yeah, we can get into Acts and all that sort of stuff. But more and more, he ties his physical sacramental presence to concrete things that we can taste, touch, hear, see, and smell. He veils himself as he veiled himself, as God veiled himself in the flesh of Jesus, Jesus veils himself, that same flesh, in bread in wine, in water, and word. And there we can actually touch, taste, hear, see, smell Golgotha. Christ is here for us. And actually, Pastor Apple, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of a shameless plug here. I know I shouldn't yet. Um, I've got a full book on this sort of thing from, from a sweep of, of scripture from Genesis to Revelation Worship, our place in time, our little puzzle piece fit into that coming out uh, with CPH in June of 2023 that kind of walks through all of the same stuff that I'm talking about. But this is exactly one of those things that we see in worship. And why I brought that up is because there's this whole chapter 
and, and Hebrews 12 gets at this, where we're, and whenever we enter into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, it is heaven on earth. We slip, we who are in time slip into this, into this heavenly existence, though we cannot see it all with our own eyes, but we hear it. And we smell it and we taste it all veiled, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. So heaven is is really where Christ dwells. And that's how scripture talks about this. And Christ dwells in our midst in word and sacrament. So we get to be, heaven and earth get to touch for one hour or more a week on every Sunday. Yeah, beautifully said, Pastor Phil Beck. So go to where that happens, to that place where God's people are gathered around his means of grace, where Christ himself is present. Go to that place, receive that gift where heaven and earth touch. We're going to take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Deuteronomy 12 with Pastor Adam Polbeck. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 23rd. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 31 with Pastor Adam Filipek. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we were talking about the place in which God chooses to set his name. That is where the people of Israel were to go to offer their sacrifices. You made the connection where Christ makes himself present in word and sacrament today. That is where the people of God go to receive his gifts. We need to talk from this text in Deuteronomy 12, particularly about the sacrifices, that this place was the place where the sacrifices and other offerings are mentioned. Uh, What are the sacrifices, the offerings that are mentioned? Why this place? Give us some of those details. And then Point us forward to how does this teach us of Christ? Absolutely. So this is the place mentioned in Leviticus chapter 17, the construction of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, and then the institution of the Levitical priesthood, because not even Moses at the end of Exodus was allowed to enter the tent of meeting anymore. So we have this Levitical priesthood that comes about to offer specific daily sacrifices in a particular place, you know, here and now, wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus and his word and his sacraments are being distributed, there God promises to be present among them, which is why we can go to a variety of places because 
Christ is present in word and sacrament where his saints are gathered. But in the Old Testament here, what we had was a particular place in the land. And that initially is a tent or a tabernacle, a tent of meeting at which the Levites, the tribe of Levi, going back to the children of Abraham, Levi and his descendants are made priests and Aaron being kind of that first uh, of the of the high priests. Well, just by way of reminder of what this all is all about, the priests typically offered five distinct and vital sacrifices as God commanded. They offered a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Now, except for that grain offering and that peace offering, which are really about thanking God and rejoicing in his good gifts, of food and fellowship with him, which we'll come back to when you talk about the tithes, because that's where we're going to pick that stuff up again. Every other sacrifice was about dealing with sins and cleansing and removing sins so that God could remain in the midst of his people. So twice a day, morning and evening, the priests would offer a burnt offering in which they would slaughter an unblemished animal, present it to God by sprinkling its blood upon the altar of burnt offering. Then they would burn the rest of the animal on that same altar, which is located outside of the temple in that courtyard area. And similarly, for specific sins committed knowingly or unknowingly by individuals and families, the priests would slaughter an unblemished lamb, um, present it to God by sprinkling its blood on the burnt offering, again, the altar of birth offering, and pouring its lifeblood at, at the basin of that altar. For specific sins committed, they do sort of a, a, the same thing. Enter into the tabernacle's holy place, sprinkle its blood seven times before the veil, putting the blood on the horns of the altar of incense, and pouring out the rest of it on the altar of burnt offering. All of this was done to make atonement daily for the entire nation of Israel. It was a substitutionary sacrificial offering of blood by which God gave sinners his acceptance, his pardon, and his cleansing from sin and access to his presence. That was daily. And then once a year, they had that atonement offering, the the scapegoat and the lamb of sacrifice to fully clean the temple, uh, or in this case, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then the people, the sprinkling of the blood on them. So today, we don't do this where two or three are gathered, right? We don't offer bloody sacrifices. Why? Well, Christ himself offered himself as our great high priest. Christ offered himself. The Lamb of God offered himself as the high priest Jesus. I'll say it better than that. The high priest Jesus offered himself, his body and his blood, on the altar of the cross, once for all to atone for the sins of the entire world. And having atoned for the sins of the world, he sat down at the Father's right hand. And there is no need, Hebrews 10 and 12, there's no need for us to offer anything anymore. Even 1 Corinthians picks picks up on this. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, right? And then Hebrews articulates that, that there's no need for further offerings because he has offered himself. And so now what we get are not sin offerings, but we get the benefits of his offering on the cross and then his resurrection in the empty tomb. He gives us the fruits of his death and resurrection. We receive Jesus, his forgiveness, his mercy, his life, all for us to 
take away our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's that application of the cross in our own lives where he puts his name upon us. So all of this that happens is, is not a bloodied sacrifice. No, we are given this. And then we as, as priests, as a priestly community, um, offer ourselves, our, our bodies as living sacrifices, right? Um, so we give up our time. We give up our our money, we give it whatever the case may be, um, in order to love and serve one another as God has loved and served us in Christ. So this whole sacrifice carries through to the New Testament, but it's it's changed once Jesus has fulfilled the sacrifice once for all. Yeah, the the connection you made to First Corinthians five, where Christ is called our Passover Lamb, it always reminds me of the the. Easter hymn that Luther wrote, Christ Jesus lay on death strong bands mm. in the way that he, I, I forget which stanza it's in, but you know, he, he invites us to sing with him, see his Christ, see his blood now marks our door. Yeah. Faith points to it, death passes or and Satan cannot harm us. So the once for all sacrifice that Christ accomplished, as you said, I, I really like that language. The fruits of it are applied to us, given to us. And, and in those means that we were talking about earlier, where Christ makes himself present in word and sacrament, that is where the blood of Christ now marks us as his own. So we're not doing the sacrifices in those places, but we're receiving the fruit of that sacrifice. So then, as Paul says, and you brought out Romans 12, we are now living sacrifices, which is is really marvelous language. You know, sacrifice is something that dies, and yet in Christ we live. What, what a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Pastor Philip, now you mentioned we've got some sacrifices that deal with the forgiveness of sins, which you've talked about, but then there are other sacrifices, other offerings that are mentioned in here, wine, grain, oil, dealing with the tithe and the provision of for the Levites. What's being spoken of here? Yeah, so the grain offerings and the peace offerings were more of tithe offerings that involved grain and wine and oil. Also, at times, the offerings when we get into you know sin, you, you'd use your livestock for that. But really, all of the tithe is a requirement of the law in the Israelites' time where they are to give 10% of the crops or, or livestock that they raise, the first fruits, the first thing, right, um, to the tabernacle and the temple. And that's in Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14, and it's reiterated for the temple in 2 Chronicles uh, 31. But the tithe is not like the child sacrifices. You know, we hear this at the end of the child sacrifices, and what are the sacrifices about? Appeasing God. That's not this. Actually, the sacrifices they do are much like we hear in our own offertory. I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord, right? So this is that, this is that concrete recognition, uh, not to appease God, but that God has actually provided these things for us. Uh, you know, a Christian does not go about their day-to-day life and say, look at what I did. Look at the food I bought with my own hard sweat of my brow and look at what I... No, the first thing you know, you do when you eat as a Christian is the eyes of all look to you, O Lord. You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless us. And these your gifts, which we receive from your bountiful goodness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray And that prayer is a recognition that it is not our work, but it is solely because of God that we have a job, because of God has opened his hand and provided us with 
food and house and clothe and land, devote children and wife, all of these different things. It is a concrete recognition that God is providing for us. And for that, it's our duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. So with with that response then, how does that tie into the support of the Levites? Verse 19, take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in the land. How do these things go together? You'll notice that in the text, it said to take care of the Levites, like you just mentioned, and the Levites have no inheritance. And that's the big thing. We'll learn in Deuteronomy 18 later on that the Levitical priests, the whole tribe gets allotments of a land. Uh, Joseph's tribes get divided into two. And that's why you still have the allotments of, of 12, because you got the, the half tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. But uh, Levites get nothing. The Levites in Deuteronomy 18 are actually told the Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levite, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. So they're the keeper of the Lord's uh, tabernacle where he is present among him. They are the ones responsible for daily sacrifice. So they don't have, I mean, just practically, they won't have time to grow anything or do anything. They're the keepers of that. Well, how is Levi going to be kept alive and what's going to be their inheritance? Well, people get an allotment of land, but the Levites actually get an intimate presence of the Lord that they get to dwell in as they serve as priests for the sake of their fellow Israelites. And so how are they going to live? Well, God has provided for them, not only his presence, um, but they like the birds of the field and the flowers of the field do not have to worry. Your heavenly father knows that they need food even as they serve in in uh, in the priestly temple. So, so he feeds them, right? And how does he feed them? Well, through the hand of their neighbor, fellow Israelites. Now, interestingly enough, as we go forward into the New Testament, Paul gives a similar admonition to congregants, uh, to laity, as we are in terms of talking and custom in terms of talking to, about people today. More probably prevalent language in the New Testaments are the saints. When the saints, the ones made holy by the blood of Jesus, when that priestly community gathers, there is one whom God has chosen to be his instrument, one whom he will speak the fruits of his cross from, give the fruits of his cross from, from hands and mouth and feet. And those instruments are the ones he has breathed upon, the apostles and then those who are in succession of them. We call them today more familiar words, pastors. And about those who give out the fruits of Jesus's cross, word and sacrament, the absolution men, right? About them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, whoever serves as a soldier at his own expense, who does that, right? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does God's law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher in hope of sharing the crop. If we have the, if you have sown, if we have sown spiritual things among you, that meaning Paul and the apostles, if we have done this, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul comments about caring for your pastors. Even further in Galatians, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So even now, there is this, this blessing of God where God opens his hand and satisfies the desires of even worried pastors. How does he do it? Uh, through the hands of, of, of his saints, those who are gathered around word and sacrament and are very thankful to receive the fruits of the cross. Yeah, talk. I'm, I'm glad you you brought up that New Testament connection because you know we talked about the the New Testament connection when it came to the sacrifices that deal with forgiveness. That we don't do those sacrifices anymore. We receive the sacrifice, the fruits of the sacrifice that Christ made for us. With these sacrifices of thanksgiving, the ones that support the Levites, and particularly the matter of the tithe, you, you've talked about how. Christians continue to support the one whom God has placed to to deliver his gifts to his people through their gifts. But in in terms of things like the tithe and you know giving to church the the dreaded stewardship month, how does this text apply to Christians today? Excuse Pastor Bill. Yeah. So the giving of the first fruits, and, and Paul even goes further than the tithes. Uh, he talks about as each is is given, um, so more than ten percent, right? Give give what the Lord has given, and that, those things to you in recognition of Him, and those things are used among us for the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, I know it's lackluster to to for people to say, well, I guess that goes to pay um, lights in the church or air conditioning in the building or a pastor's salary or or the c- buying of wine and bread for communion but these are the place this is the place where god has promised to be when you gather together among you wherever two or three are gathered in the saints to speak through his chosen instrument whom he has called and ordained to be in his stead and by his command and to feed you with this bread and this wine which are actually his body and blood given and shed for you. So it seems common, but when the Christians stop and think about it, man, this is for the use of the holy things of God. This is so that all of the, all that we give is given, yes, so that we can gather around God's word and sacrament. And then also the offering is used to go out and to care for those in need, to love one another as Christ has loved us, so that those offerings are used not only for God's presence here in time as we gather and there's moment in time where heaven and earth meet in the divine service, but also out of these doors. God continues to care for his creation through his saints, through the church. So what seems oftentimes is just like luster, it goes for this, it goes for that, is actually meat, right, salutary, and breathtakingly beautiful when you stop and think that God is using us sinners to care for everyone else out there in the world. And he's even using the things that we bring in offering to care for us here, that he may meet with us, forgive our sins, cleanse us from unrighteousness, and that we may dwell with him here in time. And then again, in eternity. Yeah, that that truly is a beautiful thing. Another thing that I want to pick up from this text, because it is, it's repeated, the Lord, on more than one occasion in this text, and it shows up in other places in the Old Testament, wants his people to know that they are not to eat the blood of any animal. And you know, they in this text, it does make the distinction, 
you know, when you're doing these sacrifices, you only do them in the place that the Lord has given you. If you need to eat food, it's okay to slaughter an animal and eat that animal in your own hometown if it's too far away from the temple, right? There is that distinction made. Yes. But in bo- in both cases, the Lord is very specific about not eating the blood. Why, why is that such a big deal? And then in connection with that, because we've mentioned it, we've talked about the Lord's Supper, in which Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, take and eat, take and drink. So put that into the, that conversation about the blood as well. Sure. So yeah, the lifeblood is not to be touched. It is sacred. Uh, and the Lord actually promises in Leviticus 17 that anyone who does shall be put to death. Uh, it, is a, it is a capital offense to God to take that. And that, you know, that, that blood goes all the way back, honestly, to Abel. If we really trace through it, and we don't have the time to do it, but am I my brother's keeper? His blood cries out to me from the ground. And so you have this intimate connection between blood and life and the person and God's image. Well, in the New Testament, when Christ, our Passover lamb, appears, and he offers himself, our great high priest, as the lamb of sacrifice— he offers his blood upon the cross once for all, and by that blood that speaks a better word than Abel's blood, a better word than just simply, I have died, you know, I'm in the image of God, but no, I have died, and this is your life, risen from the grave, here am I. This is a conversation that gets brought into John 6, when, when a Christian believes the words of our Lord, They have faith, and in faith, they feast on his body and drink his blood in faith. Well, that's also very common in in many, many commentaries, old uh, early church commentaries, Luther, uh, to see John 6 as not only faith, but a sacramental as well, that we actually are eating the risen body and blood of Jesus, and feasting on his flesh, uh, feasting on his blood, we actually have that which gives life. Christ now is in us and through us for our life and for the life of the world. And this is the take, eat, take, drink. This is my body and blood. And whoever feasts on Christ lives. Whoever drinks his blood lives our life is always in Christ. Pastor Philip, Heck, we have about four minutes on the on the morning here this today, and in the last part of our text, there is a lot of repetition. The Lord repeats him, Himself multiple times on some of these things, as, as we've already talked about. But over and over again, the main thrust is: do what I'm telling you. Be careful. Obey these things. Don't fall into idolatry. Hold on to my words. Uh, take us into that repeated command of the Lord. Help us to wrap things up this morning. Absolutely. And I think the pertinent, um, and maybe you can find this because I don't have the, I put my my text to the side for a moment. Um, but in our text today, it had this specifically phrase about doing what is right in your own eyes. And that is a phrase that is the end of the book of Judges. That Israel is doing what is right in their own eyes. So what is God warns about in Deuteronomy 12 actually happens in Judges 
chapter 12, uh, Judges at the end of end of the book of Judges. So what happens in Deuteronomy 12 happens at the end of the book of Judges. And the big thing is that as long as you walk according to the statutes, God's name will remain there and you will be his people and God himself will be as your God. We know this from the first commandment. You will live long in the land. And this promise is not just for them, but for their children. Well, the Lord constantly tells them to keep walking in the statutes and the command of the Lord, to fear, love, and trust in him. Otherwise, they will lose their inheritance. And so this is, this is what ends up happening. We know the Old Testament story very, very well. Israel is idolatrous. They divide into two kingdoms after Solomon, you know, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, both kingdoms north and south are idolatry. 722 BC, the Assyrians destroy the north, the 10 tribes there, 586 BC. Well, then you have the destruction of the south and God's presence actually leaves the temple out of the land forever. We studied this actually when we looked at the book of Ezekiel and the Mount of Olives and God going out of that temple and sitting on the Mount of Olives and not being seen until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus riding into Jerusalem there for that passion and Passover week. Well, what the tabernacle could never do and what the temple could never do, which was cleansing sin, it could never deal with the real problem, which was never external. It was always internal. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts. That's what happens in Jesus Christ. He tabernacles among us. He takes on human flesh. He makes the body his temple that he might cleanse that flesh inside and out. And having risen from the dead after being sacrificed once for all, after offering himself as the sacrifice, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have been raised from death, he is immortal. He is without stain, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, as he has always been. But now our bodies too are without spot, stain, wrinkle, or blemish. The whole thing about taking on flesh and ascended to the heaven. He has promised to come back to take us where he is, um, where he has prepared that place on the cross. So that where he is, we may be also. That we might ascend with our bodies to live with God forever and enjoy the inheritance of the presence of God, the crown of righteousness, immortality, and the incorruptibility of the resurrection, where we shall see our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil forever destroyed. This is that full circle aspect of this, and we're only a part into this right now where we will get into the nitty-gritty that they'll get into idolatry, the wages of sin is death. But we know the greater story, the prophets and the patriarchs and the actual apostles all bear witness to the full story, God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ. Pastor Adam Filipek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 31. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. Our Lord dwells among us in Jesus Christ. His name dwells there. He tabernacles among us still in word and sacrament. That is where we go. We go to him to receive his gifts. The fruit of his once-for-all sacrifice is ours in word and sacrament. Thanks be to God. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.